Anime on the Sea to Sky, episode 6. Um, not really much going on here. The weather's been pretty nice over the past two weeks, but considering that we're going to be getting a lot of rain and the cold is also going to be coming our way as well, we might actually start getting some snow up on the highways and up uh, near the mountains. So honestly, that's going to be something to look forward to, considering that November of last year was honestly pretty dry, leading into a very unappetizing opening to the beginning of last year's ski season. So, I don't know, we'll just have to wait and see how that goes. And then... Kind of same deal in terms of news on the week of November 1st. Not really much happening in terms of anime on this week either. I mean, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Netflix kind of go through making new deals, but they've been kind of stagnant. They haven't really released a schedule other than, okay, we're going to be having a handful of shows coming out in 2011. Um, I mean, Demon Slayer, uh, their film, Infinity Train, has honestly just been making rounds consistently over the past couple of weeks since it's been out. So, I mean, to turn it away from that a bit... um, Reach for the Top Gunbuster is honestly going to be getting a remastered uh, version inside of Japanese theaters later this month, considering that that was um, Hideki Anno's directorial debut with the six-episode Mecha OVA. It's kind of nice to figure out that they're going to be getting a little bit of variety going into their theaters over the course of November. Of course, this is kind of nitpicking at news, considering that there isn't really much going on this week, and since it's not going to be coming over to North America or Europe, I really don't know why this is going to be going through, but comparatively... Not really much going on. I mean, on a little more optimistic note, Kyoto Animation wins the Women in Animation's Diversity Award. Um, considering that these awards were part of the Spark Animation 2020s events that ran virtually, as many events have been doing over the course of this pandemic through October 29th to November 8th. The WIA Board of Directors honored Kyoto Animation for creating an inclusive studio based on a gender-balanced workplace. Considering that anything positive related to Kyoto Animation, especially with the numbers that they've been raking in through their uh, Violet Evergarden film that just got released about a month and a half ago, it's honestly been nice to see that they've been accepting applications for different positions for both fixed-term and round-year employment periods. The studio had proposed recruiting for the 2021 fiscal year due to the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, and considering that back in July 18th of 2019, when that devastating fire broke out, and honestly, and considering the absolute tragedy of the fire that broke out in Kyoto Animation Studio in 2019, I'm glad that at some point in time they're going to be able to finally go through on their time to heal and get back into doing the things that they love and do. The demolition work on their old Studio One building that caught fire is going to be concluded on April 28th or of next year, but it's... Honestly, anything positive comes their way, they, they deserve it wholeheartedly. Going into, besides the rest of that, I mean, there's not really much. I keep sounding like a broken record. This week was just uninteresting in terms of the rest of it. The most that, the most that came out in terms of uh, anime-related news was the handful of shows and sequels that are going to be coming out in winter of 2021 now that they finally got a handful of dates going through. Uh, say that Promised Neverland Season 2 is coming out January 8th. Reincarnated as a Slime coming out in January 12th. Seven Deadly Sins in January 6th, so just a handful of shows that unfortunately I'm not really going to watch, except for Promised Neverland. Now, I say that I'm not going to watch, but considering the comparison into what I'm watching this season to what's going to be occurring next season is just completely night and day. This season I'm only watching the Higurashi remake, and there is nothing else that has essentially been catching my interest. Um, going through and seeing all of the shows that have been recommending and popping up on my feed and showing what our anime has been watching over the past couple of weeks, nothing has really caught my interest. But in comparison to the amount of shows that I'm going to be watching week by week once 2021 hits, it is going to be 
insane. I mean, before 2021, there's going to be the beginning of the final season of Attack on Titan, which is going to be going through on December 7th, and that is less than a month away. I cannot wait. Promise Neverland Season 2, I'm going to be jumping in as well. The first season set up a really, um, a really good mystery and thriller dynamic compared to the um, obstacles that the majority of the characters have to overcome, and now that they're going to be fending for themselves in a world that is completely alien to them, I honestly can't wait to see what happens next. Dr. Stone was an incredibly fun, um, not sci-fi, but essentially just uh, glorifying and honoring everything that science, the majority of what science has been able to achieve over the past several centuries and how it's made it more not only entertaining but fascinating to read and learn and everything else that goes wrong through it. So not only being a fantastical entertaining time, I'm honestly curious to see what they're going to be doing in the Stone Wars arc that is also going to be coming out next season. Um... I'm going to be catching up on Yuru Camp Season 2 as well. The first season was just honestly one of the most laid-back and relaxing times that I could remember when it came out in 2018. And if it's just going to be continuing on with new characters leading into the fold, especially a new girl coming in voiced by uh, Tomio Kurosawa, it's going to be amazing to kind of see what they're able to pull out. Lock Horizon's third season is finally going to be getting an adaptation, and so we're finally going to be getting that over uh, after another four-year gap coming through. Um, in terms of manga adaptations, I'm also going to be watching Horamiya, considering that I've heard nothing but positive reception about this uh, adaptation, where even though apparently it starts off as just a regular rom-com, but more focuses on the comedy in its later episodes, I'm honestly curious to kind of see what this adaptation is going in, because I'm just going in completely blind and accepting the praise that has been giving to me, so I'm going to be kind of curious how that's going to go. And then, I mean, in terms of, like, the other sequels that are coming out, uh, Cells at Work is also going to be getting a second season, ReZero's second part of their second season is also going to be continuing, um, Seven Deadly Sids is also going to be going through, Take That What You Will, Nana Biori is also going to be getting a third season moving in, 16 of the, tw uh, no, 14 of the 20 most popular shows at the time are sequels to previous series, and I'm legitimately curious, considering that how everything has been pushed back in the middle of the coronavirus, and everything's just been kind of put on hold, and there's not really much that the production has been able to do about it, but now that everything is just going to be colliding into this three-month period, it is going to be insane the amount of content that's going to be going through, whether it's whether it's sequels, whether it's new originals or adaptations that are going to be coming out, everything is going to be lined up for this to being one of possibly the best anime seasons in a good decade. Like, this is, this has the potential to start out a year that is honestly something that we all kind of need based on all the events that have been going through over the past year and just having 2021 start with a fresh slate with all of these amazing sequels and adaptations that are going to be coming out at the beginning of the year. Honestly, can't wait. Besides that, uh, my anime list has an app in phase one of distribution testing for both Android and iOS, with more patches and updates coming by the end of the month. A reminder to use Val as a database to keep track of your shows and staff, and to not venture too far down the page into the dreaded review section, as Mal reviews in particular are pretty useless. So... Moving on, there was one sequel that I knew I was going to be watching, but I wanted to kind of wait and use as more of the focus of this week's episode, and that is going to be Beastars Season 2. Beastars is honestly, 
an incredibly nuanced take in terms of uh, the entire fate of natural selection and fighting your own natural instincts and trying to become your own person regardless of the world that you were born in or the place that you were. It's just simply amazing what they were able to convey. A lot of <laughs> the, the worst thing that people has essentially that people have called it as of late is just um, Zootopia, but horny and that's just a, taking it a little too far but then again they're not really wrong on most parts especially due do in turn one of the characters being overtly sexual but of course that's be in her nature considering that she is a white dwarf rabbit and considering that you know even look even zootopia made a joke about procreating and how fast rabbits are able to do it so you know what they did it first but b stars is created by or not created by it was adapted by studio orange and Studio Orange is honestly one of my favorite studios at this point, considering that the two major shows that they have been able to bring into play at, um, as their own works in terms of lead animation studios has been nothing short of amazing. I mean, in terms of where they originated, they were founded in 2004, considering that uh, one of their founders, Eiji Inamoto, who was a famed CG animator back in the 2000s, uh, they worked. He worked on various productions in terms of Zebex Heroic Age, and they also, the company leading into the 2010s, also did a handful of stuff on Rail Wars. And it wasn't until they ended up getting their first co-production um, with Majestic Prince, um, but either considering that Dokokobo kind of took the reins and they were doing a lot of support work. Um, the ones that they were able to take a little more into their own hands would have been uh, Nor 9, an active raid, but then again, those were also uh, continuous co-productions going through with Kinema Citrus and with Production IMS, and they did a handful of CG work on Dimension W, but of course they were the second in hand, followed uh, followed by 3 Hertz. So they focused on the majority of the 3D assets and animations and backgrounds and the majority of the mechatronics and robotics that came through in that series. But it wasn't until 2017 that they ended up getting their first full production underneath the roof of their own studio back in 2017 based on the manga by Haruko Ichikawa it's essentially this fantasy-esque show based on an island in the middle of nowhere where everyone every being on this island is a gem a humanized um, gem based on that are measured by hardness depending on the different um, valuability of their gem structure so some of them have a hardness of 10, uh, say, through the diamonds and the carbon-based gems, and Phosphophyllite, who is our main character, is only a uh, hardness of 3. Incredibly brittle and very weak, and the reason why all of these gems essentially are rated by their um, hardness and their durability is because daily, weekly, whenever they decide to come, there is this mysterious entity called the Lunarians that descend from these sunspots that originate on the moon, and they come in to try and break and consume and uh, harvest these gems to take back into the moon to use for nefarious... To At this point in time, we don't even know. For nefarious purposes, just for jewelry, just as a matter of hunting, a lot of it is shrouded in mystery in the beginning of this series. But the only non-gem-like entity on the island besides the besides the organisms that still live in the vast ocean that surrounds them, is their teacher. 
And he is a a very durable, what seems to be only human on this island, dressed in uh, in traditional garb, and he acts as the GM's caretaker, father, parental figure, essentially whatever you want to go through. But he harvests a lot of care in these gems, and the gems return that in kind, considering that he is the one that not only protects them in times of need, but also helps nourish them, uh, teach them about their world, about their history, about what they are. And it's an incredibly interesting fantasy, unlike most of what I've seen before. And honestly, reading the manga as well, picking that up on Bookwalker, was a really fantastical experience, considering that taking this from 2D to 3, not necessarily to 2D animation, or from 2D manga panels to 2D animation, this was taken into 3D. And so this is what uh, Studio Orange is known by throughout the majority of the anime community and the industry at large. They are being given praise for their usage of almost having, at least in this series that they have, that they have led, that they have done solo productions on in terms of Land of Illustrious and Beastars, almost entirely through CG animation. And just going through... The entirety of the use of CG animation inside of anime has just been, like, a hot topic over the past two decades. Even though this stuff has been, like, incorporated through stuff back in the 90s up through there, there was a really awkward point in the 2000s where in the in the advent of DigiPaint and different uh, computer technologies being, like, thrown in at the forefront and being used as the norm inside of the industry, it was really weird. Uh, to kind of go back and watch a handful of these shows where CG was very prominent, whether it was through vehicles, whether it was through backgrounds, whether it was through the majority of the environment that it was being generated in. The problem with using CG inside of a 2D-based medium is that the Uncanny Valley gets traversed a little more often than not, considering that you would see all of these... 2D assets, whether they were backgrounds, you would see all these uh, buildings painted in, you would see, like, if it was just a regular standard shot, then you would have, like, a 2D background, and then the majority of the 2D assets that were being brought through, um, including, including, like, the highly kinetic scenes, you would see a lot of speed lines, a lot of stuff that would be able to hide the backgrounds and give more focus to the characters at the forefront. But then, when CG comes into play, a lot of it is just used as a time-saving measure, whether it's drawing vehicles, Uh, using large crowd shots, going through various animals that are too hard to animate and would take up too much time, so it would just be a lot easier to try and incorporate a 3D asset into the mix and try and hide it with a lot of 2D shading just to make sure it fits in well with the shot. The problem with a lot of the CG that has been used in a lot of these shows, or at least for the ones that are really on the low end, is that it's just a cost-cutting measure. It just saves them time, which is definitely understandable considering that the production of most um, animation is just incredibly fraught with, you know, issues and delays and not enough manpower, and it's anything that you can use to save you a bit of time and effort is honestly something that shouldn't be taken lightly. But what Orange was able to do, even with the... Even with the shows that they worked on previously in the 2000s and then the co-productions that they did um, with a handful of other series beforehand was that their CG, it, it was it was awkward whenever it was used in a shot, but it was still the, uh, the maneuverability about t- in terms of action direction and the models that they were able to use were still so on point 
<laughs> excuse me, they were so on point and then used to a degree of, of finesse and mastery that had rarely been seen, considering that, you know, AG, their their founder, was just, like, born and melded inside of a CG, um, and <laughs> not a CG environment, but that is essentially what he was uh, majored in and mastered, and he was able to bring that to the forefront. And in Land of the Lustrous, they use these environments and they use these CG assets to such a degree that it is just infallible and just ridiculous on how they were able to uh, go through the majority of the production that they were able to utilize. It is just amazing, but it's like regardless of going into like how good the story of Land of the Lustrous is, even though it is legitimately amazing and the only negative thing I can say about Land of the Lustrous is that it's incomplete. Even the uh, original story in the manga is ongoing, but they're probably about 90% of the way there and it's just... That, that's one of the issues that I have with a lot of good studios, and Ufotable kind of has this problem as well, is that you really, you enjoy the studio so much, is that they are masters of their craft, that every single either original project that they produce or any um, adaptation that they decide to undergo, they are so good at their jobs that you just wish that they had enough manpower and resources to just make this one show and animate it to completion. But this is anime. You rarely get any complete stories here. Very rarely. If you, which is really awkward considering that the only shows that I ever give nines and tens are either ones that are um, that are amazing to their to their degree, but they also have a conclusive ending, one that actually finalizes it. But when a lot of the stuff that comes out through anime is adaptations and reworks and remasters and stuff that is more focused on selling the product that it is based off of rather than creating a legitimately new piece of work, you rarely get a series or a studio to fully complete that bid. Unless you're Bones or Piero or or Dean that essentially like gets a product that they can just milk for the rest of time. Um, so like Boruto, like all, like all the shonen stuff that's coming out, including the sequels, like uh, like Promised Neverland and like Dr. Stone, like those are going to be getting like seasons upon seasons upon seasons because their manga have been going on for years and of course they're going on going to go on for several more. And like that's the only thing that I can knock off about Land of the Lustrous is that its story is incomplete because... Studio Orange, it was their first solo adaptation and production, and there was no way that they could still complete this entire adaptation to the rest of it. Like, at this point in time, if the manga goes on for as long as it does, then they would probably need about a 40 to 50 episode series. So, three and a half to four seasons worth of content just to finish the story. And that is a lot of time and a lot of and a lot of effort and a lot of resources that would have to go into it. Even if they did have the story completed, even if they did have all the storyboarding like laid out in front of them and this is the ending and this is how you have to like go through and complete it, it would still take them years to adapt it. And now the issue with that is that they have made another <laughs> fucking amazing adaptation in the form of Beastars. And Beastars is essentially not... They, if Land of the Lustrous was amazing CG going through rocks and, uh, <laughs> rocks and gems and environments, then Beastars is essentially like doing the same bid and spending a lot of time and a lot of effort finalizing and polishing their character models. And so... It was a lot easier back in Land of Lustrous, considering that even though every single distinct gem has their own... The problem with all the distinct gems and what uh, get spent, made them spend a lot of time on going through is that the gems would have 
relatively same facial features, but different hairstyles. And the hair is where they get the majority of their color and their identity based on the gem that they are uh, being adapted from. And then for but at least the really a really good um, time-saving measure is that every single um, every single gem has the same outfit. So in terms of the modeling, they don't really have to worry about body size or proportions. They only have to worry about the majority of the facial animation and how their hair reacts to light, how it reacts to movement, how it reacts to dynamicism. It, it honestly is based around that. Now you jump into Beastars, and it is through... And so Beastars is essentially taking base in a high school, but in a Zootopia-esque society where everybody is an animal, a herbivore, a carnivore, an omnivore, essentially where you go. You've got lions, you've got tigers, you've got bears, you've got wolves, but then you've also got mice, you've also got llamas, alpacas, squirrels, and rabbits, and essentially all these different kinds, but they live in the, but they live in the middle of society where herbivores and carnivores have to like live um, at peace with each other, so meat is banned. All of the carnivores have to essentially go through and eat like vegetarian-based meals or plant-based meats uh, through the majority of the time that they have to go through. But there is still like a background. There is still always there is a mafia group that is run entirely by lions, considering that they are at the top of the food chain. There is a black market where several carnivores go deep into the city, into its underbelly, and you still have the opportunity to chow down on regular meats and sausages and ground-up stuff that have been taken instead of from the carcasses of other species that are inferior, legitimate species that you live with. And so, of course... And the only anime-esque version that this story brings to the fold is that the, is that almost every single one of our characters is in high school. It takes place in a high school where not only do you have to worry about puberty and urges and the majority of that, you also have to worry about your place inside of the society of an animal kingdom where uh, you have one of the main characters, um, um, Lewis, who is a deer... And he is prideful, he's confident, he is going to be the next B-star. He is going to be the next leader of their society. But he is a, And he never shies away and asserts his dominance as a herbivore surrounded by carnivores. And then in contrast to that, you have Lagoshi, who is a wolf and a towering, intimidating one at that. But he is incredibly shy he's um un he's underwhelming he's very um timid but there are times when of course he's a wolf he smells blood he gets various urges whether they are um hunger based or sexual it always has to come to the forefront because that is his nature nature and instinct play a very major part in this series and this is something that comes up a lot inside of the series and it is fleshed out and well-developed and it is legitimately amazing um, what the mangaka is able to do in terms of characterization, not only through a regular societal-based bid, but also one that focuses on instinct and um, animosity compared to the rest of the people that you have to live in and alongside. Whether you are one that deserves to be and you have the confidence, regardless if you have the confidence or the drive, it also all depends on what you are born as inside of this world. You, If you are born as a herbivore, there is legitimately only so far that you can go up, considering that not only are you 
more so weaker than the majority of your competition, but you are also smaller and more feeble and looked down upon just based on how on the way that you were born. And just being able to dissect that with such a distinct knowledge of not only the animals that the mangaka is able to adapt, but also bringing that into a society not only new to us, but mirroring a lot of the stuff that happens in our own world as well. So it is legitimately amazing just to kind of see what they are able to accomplish in creating this work and pushing it forward. I mean, it's still kind of, it's still got a couple of shoujo elements, but it's hilariously enough, based on the source material and its content, if there's anything that I would have to chalk up this episode to, it is basically just a like garnered um, recommendation podcast for Land of the Lustrous, which you can go catch and watch on um, Amazon Prime, and then Beastars, which is now on which is now on Netflix, and getting a second season coming out at the beginning of 2021. The beginning, <laughs> 2021 is absolutely going to be phenomenal based on a lot of the stuff that's going to be going through, whether it's sequels, whether it's original stuff. Um... But I mean, back to Studio Orange, the fact that in the midst of an entire industry that is still getting used to implementing CG elements and trying to figure out what they're able to accomplish and not pass through the uncanny valley, Orange has been able to use 3D CG in a way that is the identity of the show. And it definitely helps considering that the one thing that happens is that in, in a lot of regular anime, the 2D to 3, uh, 3D CG ratio would probably be something like 70, 30, 80, 20. And it all kind of depends on, and, you know, how many assets are you going to be including this? How many vehicles, how many backgrounds are going to be going through? What part of the production is going to need uh, more focus over others? And so it's kind of a hard balance to try and figure out where the CG needs to go and when it needs to be utilized and when it can be used to good effect and not as a cost-cutting measure. But the difference is is that Studio Orange is 90% CG, especially with the character models and the backgrounds and the environments that they are able to construct. There are a handful of 2D shots that still, but, and what 2D is able to do is that it, how they're able to blend the 2D seamlessly into the shot, and you don't even realize that it happens, is legitimately amazing on the craft that Studio Orange was able to do. And a lot of what they do is that a lot of the storyboards, of course, almost all the storyboarding is also in 2D. So, what they normally do, in terms of what the production that they had on Land of the Lustrous, is that they would have a just a outline of the situation, and of course that's storyboarding, but regardless, they would do like this 2D cut, these like a 2D practice cut on like, not necessarily, like fours and fours and sixes don't really exist, but a very low frame-based um, animated preview of what they wanted the scene to do, where the camera wanted to go, what the dynamicism was going to be. So essentially just storyboarding, but with an extra set of panels. And the panels don't really need to say, okay, this character is going to be doing this, This char- um, they're going to be saying this, this is how they're feeling. It's mostly just adding more frames into that storyboarding to make it show like, okay, this is kind of how I want it to move. But anything that you can do in between to just kind of say like, this chunk is mostly just 
filler. But you can um, add as much to you want to that filler to make it, you know, more stylish, more um, more interesting and entertaining, just considering that it is a bridge point from A to B and from this part of the scene to this part of the scene that is definitely going to have to happen and is definitely going to have to be adapted to a T. And I think another thing that they were able to do with not only adding more frames to the 2D storyboarding was focus almost all of the um, facial expressions in 2D. They went by they went by regular 2D character design sheets. They wanted to go through and see what kind of um, expression would fit best on them. Some of the some of the facial expressions were easy enough to map 3D onto the layer and onto the asset of the character. Um, a handful of times they would use um, just regular 2D shots to give a much you know more dynamic and a much more visceral emoting feel because there is a lot that happens in both of these series. There is a lot that can hit you in different ways and unsuspecting ones that you would have not necessarily been able to see coming. And what both of these shows are able to accomplish and what Orange has been able to accomplish on just two lead productions is just nothing short of astounding. They have been inside this industry since 2004, but only now have they started coming into their own as creating not only a work that is almost entirely CG, but a work that is that you would never imagine and be able to see differently in like in the model that they decided to do. And if I could not imagine nowadays seeing these two shows being adapted in any other way by Studio Orange, which is an issue because both of these series are incredibly long and would take a lot of time to adapt because I know if either of these series ended up continuously getting adapted all the way to their end, they would honestly easily find their way onto my favorites. But I know that Studio Orange doesn't have the time, they don't have enough people to essentially focus on more than one pr project, and so that's the best and worst part about seeing this studio emerge in, in, in of its own, because I know that as much as I would love to see more of Beastars in Land of the Lustrous, um, I, and I just as much want to see them make new projects, whether it's original, whether it's more adaptations, because they have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are one of the biggest up-and-comers inside of these industries using craft and mastery that rarely anybody else has ever seen before, and I can only hope for their success moving forward. <music>